welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of global trends, issues, and developments in fuels and vehicles. Are you looking for real insight and analysis from the industry's top experts? Are you trying to stay ahead of the tea leaves? Then you're in the right place. My name is Tammy Klein, and with me today is Graham Curry, and we're going to talk about an article that he wrote, which is also on the website, which I will link to, called Lies, Damned Lies, AV, Shared Mobility, and Urban Transit Futures. Graham, welcome to the program. Hi, Tammy. Very nice to have you. So, Professor Curry is with Monash University in Australia, and I'm going to read a little bit of his bio for the listeners who may not be familiar with his work. So, Professor Curry is a renowned international public transport research leader and policy advisor with over 30 years' experience. He has published more research papers in leading international peer research journals in this field than any other researcher in the world. He is the founder of the World Transit Research Clearinghouse, which I use, by the way, which has consolidated all research in this field into a single accessible source and is now used by over 8,000 towns and cities in over 170 countries worldwide. Professor Curry has worked for some of the world's leading public transport operators, including London Transport, and he has managed numerous public transport research and development projects internationally. Professor Curry's experience spans project management, demand forecasting, planning methods in public transport, regulatory reviews, efficiency and performance benchmarking training, market research, investment appraisal, and financial and economic analysis. Graham is also a specialist advisor to international agencies on planning transport for special events and has worked at all the Summer Olympic Games since 1996 and the Hajj pilgrimage in Mecca. Graham holds one of the world's first full professorships specializing in public transport, and in this role, he aims to develop knowledge and training for the public transport profession on a national and international basis. Again, Professor Curry, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for doing this. Good to be here. Okay, so let's get into it. You wrote um, the article, Lies, Damn Lies, etc., etc. <laughs> Can you tell the listeners who may not be familiar with it, this article, what the the main themes were in the article and what motivated you to write it? At the moment, world discussion about transport has been focusing on some very exciting new technologies, such as autonomous vehicles, and also um, with great interest on the shared mobility area, you know, shared use of vehicles and so forth. As a person who's worked with cities and their transport systems and with humans and their behavior in transport, I think there's quite a big disconnect between what the current view is about these things and reality. And I would even go as far as to say that the current uh, way of thinking about these modes, you know, autonomous vehicles, shared mobility, are almost lies. And my purpose in the article was to say it like it is, because um, these are both wonderful opportunities, but if we think about them the wrong way, they could be used for bad things. And I wanted to refocus the discussion around what's really important about the future of cities and how we're going to get them to work. And I think there's a danger that we're going in the wrong direction with the current thinking. So the article talks about a number of aspects of this. Firstly, autonomous vehicles have been widely seen to be a solution to many future transport problems, 
But my major concern about them is, well, firstly, we don't even know if they can work. You know, there's very few of them on planet Earth. California has 38 million cars. So it's a little bit early to say they're going to take over. The main problem I have, though, with them is that with the growth of cities, we have a huge volume problem. We need to be extremely efficient. You know, since 2007, the majority of humankind lives in cities. And by 2030, that population will double. So we have a a huge growth problem, yet we're not really uh, expanding uh, the roads in cities. And we can't because they'll make those cities even worse, horrible congested places. There's a reasonable chance that uh, autonomous vehicles, as they're currently thought of, won't solve any of those problems. In particular, we need to have shared occupancy of vehicles to make them efficient. And autonomous vehicles are in danger of having occupancy below one. And I think there's a danger that human beings won't shed or share autonomous vehicles. By that, I mean, there will be no more than one person in each one. And indeed, because they can reposition on their own, the average occupancy will go below one. And this is exactly the opposite of what we need for city. Furthermore, I'm concerned about the word shared mobility, because I think the word is a lie. It implies sharing and indeed ownership and use of the the vehicle itself in terms of ownership can be shared, but not necessarily the occupancy at all. And a great example of this is the Uber Lyft uh, shared occupancy vehicles. Average occupancy currently from California is about 1.6. That includes the driver though. So in other words, when the vehicle's on the road driving, it's only occupied 60% of the time. So for 40% of the time, those vehicles are just adding to congestion. And then we have other shared modes, so-called shared modes, such as bike share. Well, they're not tandem bikes, they're single bikes. They are completely not sharing. And uh, so in other words, the occupancy is only ever one. And what we need in growing cities is to have many people in, in one vehicle. Otherwise, they literally will not be able to operate because of the scale of the growth we have. So the irony of this as well is that other modes, which do involve lots of shared use within the vehicle, such as public transport, are not called shared modes. They're word shared mobility. So I I see a lot of this as a lie that we're commonly all believing. Now, um, don't get me wrong, autonomous vehicles are tremendously clever stuff. We are using the epitome of human knowledge to get these vehicles to work. Also, you know, the way that we run uh, technology for things like Uber and Lyft, tremendously wonderful um, human interaction uh, of how to understand in time and space how to use vehicles. But I think they're all based currently on a lie. And until we get our technology to work in the right direction, we're in danger of making the problems we have in our cities worse. And I think we need to move in the right direction with these technologies and get our clever people to be working on the real problem, which is growing cities and the need to have shared occupancy of vehicles. So to that end, especially when you talk about shared mobility as a lie, can you talk about this concept of the hype cycle, which you you talk about and discuss uh, in the article? And by the way, I feel like I've seen, you know, different versions of the hype cycle 
just when it comes to private mobility or or fuels and vehicles, you know. And I, I feel like to some degree I see it a little bit with with electrification. So I'll I'll uh, let you comment on that. But but can you talk about this concept of the hype cycle? Yes. Yeah, so I've been trying to understand the development of these new technologies in some kind of context. And as an academic, I've been looking around for how we can understand the development of new technologies. And there is actually a website run by a consultancy called Gartner. And this website is updated every year. And all new technologies, including electric vehicles, as you say, including smartphones, including everything that we use, has been monitored by Gartner over time. What the hype cycle is, it's a recognition that over time, the visibility of new technologies varies, particularly at the start, you have a technology trigger, and then we get this huge amount of visibility and excitement, increasing its visibility as people get excited about the possibility. This is fueled partly by the technologists who want to sell their technology, but what we have is is a huge increase in visibility to what we call the peak of inflated expectations, where we realize people are talking about the technologies that are quite unrealistic, that are quite untried, but it's about excitement, you know. But we get over this peak of inflated expectations quickly, and then we start realizing that, hey, the world isn't going to be that easy, and this technology needs to be developed. And we then come down the visibility slope, if you like, to what's called the trough of disillusionment. At this point, the technology could end up being repackaging, repackaged, and we go back to the beginning again, or it could go through a slope of enlightenment over time where we start realizing how to use it properly up to a plateau of productivity. And in fact, it could also go the other direction. We could go to what's called the trash heap of failures or the swamp of continued disuse, if you like, where it's not really used as much as we hoped because in practice, it wasn't too realistic. Now, Gartner has been monitoring autonomous vehicles, just in the same way it's monitored smartphones and all the other phones and other technologies we've got. And in 2013, we're still going up the peak of inflated expectations. In about 2015, we're at the top. But in 2016, we're, go- we're coming down and we're slowly getting towards the trough of disillusionment. Because frankly, the discussions we're, we're, we're having now are not real. We have plenty of trials being discussed. But these are not real. They're not being used by people in real circumstances every day. Most driverless cars on planet Earth have a driver mm-hmm. because of the insurance, because of the um, liabilities, mm-hmm. um, and because you know human uh, the t- technology develops. They're not stupid. They know that something could go wrong, and so they they have a protection system. So, in other words, they're not really being used in the way that we want them to be yet. And this is because we, we're, we're slowly learning. It's far too early for us to talk about these technologies yet. So let me ask you, you talk about shared mobility, again, you know, being, being a lie. Let me backtrack here. Do you see the same uh, sort of uh, hype cycle with electrification, for example? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because, in fact, I, I like to contrast, if you like, the technology development of electrification with the technology development of uh, autonomous vehicles. Electrification is really here. We have vehicles that can work like this. In fact, our struggle at the moment is making them cost-effective so we can all buy them. And we're very much close to that. Whereas I think autonomous vehicles, we we don't know how to get them to work yet. We have a a system that can 
replicate the types of things we want, but we don't know how to work with them in streets with people. And that's a very, very large leap. Whereas electric vehicles, you know, we're selling Teslas all the time and they're already out there working. Mm-hmm. So they can, they can be worked and you can go and buy one tomorrow. It's just too expensive yet. Also, we haven't quite worked out with electrification how we're going to fuel the vehicles in terms of mass usage. I've just seen some research in Amsterdam that says if something like 5 to 10% of the population start recharging electric vehicles, the entire electricity grid would, would come down because it couldn't take the demand. So you see, we haven't quite fully got the whole system working yet with electrification, but I think that's much closer than we have with autonomous vehicles where we literally don't have any yet open operation. Yeah, I've just seen a study, um, and uh, there's there's now been a book and a real effort coming out of the University of California at Davis, their ITS uh, Sustainable Transportation Program. It's called the Three Revolutions, and and basically it's raised some of the same issues, you know, that uh, with with respect to you know shared mobility or or you know sharing electrification and autonomy. And, you know, the, the summary of that, which you, you, I'm sure you're, you're probably aware of, is really it can only work if those three are, you know, to used together. If, you know, and actually the key piece of that is actually sharing simply because of the congestion and, and, and other issues that you're raising here and have, have raised in the article. You know, but the thing is, is, you know, I look at just my own, you know, and, and what I know of others activities. And you're right. I mean, we have the option to share now when we want to take an Uber somewhere. And I can tell you the number of times I've, I've done that. And that's zero <laughs> because, yeah. you know, there are all yeah. sorts of issues there. I mean, I, and, I'll, and I will pay extra because, you know, one of the issues I raised recently is, well, who am I sharing with? I don't know who I'm sharing. <laughs> and I don't know where they're going. And I, you know, and I'm sure some of that can be addressed with technology, but you know, some of it's kind of, look, I want to get from point A to point B. I don't want to bother with these other people. Just get mm. me there. And yes, I think it's a, common. That's a, very, that's a very important fact. So I try, because it's very uncertain this, I just try to use transportation facts to understand where we lie. The current history of sharing in travel in planet Earth is that we are decreasing sharing. Car occupancy, the number of people we have per car, has declined every year that we've had a census. Currently in Australia, where I'm based, the average occupancy of a vehicle is 1.06 people per vehicle. And that's declined since 1991 of 1.12. You know, we were never good at sharing vehicles, but we're getting worse and worse. And this is exactly the opposite trend of what we need to do. And why, why is it happening? Well, for the reasons you just told us, people feel very unsafe with uh-huh. strangers in a small vehicle, confined vehicle. Who are they going to be? Now, people don't mind sharing on larger occupancy vehicles, such as trains. And, you right. know, uh, use of these vehicles in, in big cities increasing, which is exactly the trend we need to increase. So there is a, a, a real truth about sharing. I would put it to you that once an autonomous vehicle, if it ever gets to work, why would you ever share it? And I think that's what will really happen. And we're in danger of actually ending up with more and more of these vehicles on streets. Now, if we can reduce the size of the vehicles to be single-person vehicles, great. You know, that, that would be a way forward. That's not our current discussion. 
also, there's another aspect of this, which I also consider to be a lie, and that's that there's a, there's a, a group of people who are saying that public transport doesn't have a future anymore because autonomous vehicles will take away the need for them so people can move around on their own using these vehicles. The irony of that is that autonomous vehicles currently in operation providing real service on planet Earth are all public transport vehicles. One quarter of all the railways in Asia don't have any driver. And the, this has been increasing in, throughout planet Earth. Mm-hmm. The Vancouver SkyTrain has no drivers. So, in fact, public transport systems are well in advance of all technology development in practice in this field. So um, there's another lie that we think that the public transport's behind the curve on this technology when, in fact, it leads it. The way it leads it is it also illustrative because this should help the technologists. We have very controlled environments for trains that are autonomous. We have platform doors to act to make sure passengers don't get anywhere near the vehicles. We control entry and exit in a very you know, clinical way for these vehicles. And this is the exact opposite of a public street, hmm. which is entirely uncontrolled, where people cross the road, where we have ducks and, and dogs running across roads. It's exactly the opposite of what needs to happen to have an environment where you could control humans with machines. And I think that's a, a telling insight into whether we could really get autonomous cars to work in cities. So can you talk about another notion that you bring up or concept you bring up in the article, and that's transit fusion. Can you talk about what that means for public transport or the yeah. future of public transport? One part of my narrative in the article is to, we have become enthused by words, new words, you know, shared mobility, autonomous, autonomy, autonomous vehicles. These are all new words we're commonly using, the shared economy. You know, 10 years ago, nobody would really understand what you meant. And what's happening with the English language, which always is developing, is that as new technologies, new ideas come up, we give them new words so we can understand them. So like Moz, for example, which is yeah, mobility Mars. as a service, right? Nobody ever talked about that two, year, two or three years ago. And that's okay. That's, that's showing how ingenious humankind is. But the problem is sometimes these words are wrong, such as shared mobility. I think that's not the right way to, to call it because it doesn't really say what it is. So I wanted to, to use this to talk about a real trend, I think, that is actually happening. And so I've called this transit fusion. And what's really happening is that we're trying to work out how to get public transport systems to work in cities because they carry a lot of people. It's just the type of thing cities need. And what's been happening is we've been trying to get them to be better over time. A great example of this is bus rapid transit systems. We all like railways, but they're expensive. And most cities, apart from New York City, really rely on bus systems. Buses are old, they're boxes, they're slow and reliable in traffic. What we really want is railways everywhere. So what's been happening is we've been trying to make rubber-tired railways with our bus systems using uh, bus rapid transit technology. Now, I call this transit fusion, which is really a process of taking the good things of technology such as high-frequency segregated rights of way, which is what a railway track is. You know, there's no cars holding trains up. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no reason why buses have to be held up either. We can have bus lanes or busways. 
in Brisbane, in Australia, we have a busway where the bus is running every 12 seconds. In Bogota, in, in South America, uh, you know, we have buses carrying 40,000 people an hour, which, you know, there isn't too many railways in North America can carry that. And we do it by having platform doors and mass uh, entry and exit, just the types of technology which enable fast, frequent, easy-to-get-access services. And you've mentioned mass, the mobility as a service, and new development about making it very easy for people to select any mobility they wish. And one of the problems we have with public transport is how do you get a ticket? How do I go about the process of validating tickets? Why do I have to do that? Well, mass gives you this freedom of mobility to purchase anything huh? using technology. And this is another example of transit fusion, where we're using new technology just to show us how easy it is to get to use things. And a last example would be information. Now we can use smartphones in real time to tell us where the vehicles are that we were waiting for. It takes out the anxiety of waiting and having to wait. And we can get those vehicles to tell us where they are. And so transit fusion really is something that's been already happening and will happen in the future, which is using these new clever technologies to make it easy for us to do the right thing for cities, to have shared occupancy in large volume, and to make that take the anxiety away from those trips, including things like personal safety and security. So I think that's a new way of looking at this technology, which is a progressive way. So do you think that cities collectively are, you know, where, where do you think cities stand when it comes to public uh, transport? Do you think that they are sort of, uh, you know, sort of taken in by this notion of shared mobility and autonomy? You know, in other words, is the attention that's being focused, you know, on this concept, is it somehow taking away from, you know, the investments, you know, the R&D, you know, the design work, whatever you want to call it, that really does need to be done, you know, in public transport, or are they really just, you know, sort of sort of separate parallel tracks? Is, is the autonomy issue really detracting from, um, you know, in a real impactful way um, from, you know, the, the things that need to be done uh, in cities to improve and expand public transport? Yes, I think there's a great danger here. We are focusing on the wrong priority. I think most discussion of autonomous vehicles currently is focusing on the car, but I'm not sure the car is even the solution. There's no acknowledgement that in the real world, carrying millions of millions of people every day, most autonomous vehicles are trains. And I do think there's a case to be said that part of this drive towards new technologies, autonomous vehicles, is the motor car industry protecting its patch, trying to make sure it has a future, when the truth is it's in a great deal of stress, which is a great misfortune because I think, you know, it could rethink itself and come into this space. I think the people that run cities, quite frankly, have a lot on and a lot of pressure themselves. They understand the discussion around autonomous vehicles and are pressured by the regulatory problems they face in dealing with new mobility modes like Uber and Lyft, I think they need to refocus on the public purpose, the public requirement to make sure cities work so that they can be, you know, core of the economy and increase jobs and employment and, and have active cities that people want to live in. To do that, you know, having streets full of 
cars, whether they're autonomous or even with drivers in them, is risking livability, risking economic productivity. We effectively, uh, New York City could not run without its trains. Mm-hmm. And we need to recognize how efficient that is. And as cities are growing, that's the way we should be refocusing ourselves. It is interesting what you say, because um, I have written about this from the fuels and vehicles perspective to, to those very same companies to say, you know, wow, you really need to take a look at it. <laughs> and they are, but you really need to look at this from a, you know, population demographic perspective. You know, where are these cities coming? Because, you know, 70% of us uh, in the next, you know, 15 years or so will be living in, you know, a major city or even a mega city. And so if you look at, if you look at that and you look at the projections on the growth of the global car fleet, you know, and that's just, you know, light duty vehicles, you know, basically, you know, that's about 130% growth. And it's not all in Asia. I mean, the assumption is that a lot of, a lot of it is in Asia, but not all of it. So, you know, what are you going to do with, you know, all of these cars? And then in many cities, you still have issues with air pollution, very serious. And then, you know, it's the cities, I think, that are going to bear a great deal of the burden, I think, in terms of ultimately reducing, you know, climate change and, and or mitigating climate change, especially from the transport sector. So when I look at all of that, you know, just those four simple pieces, you know, I don't get how there can be, you know, vehicles in the city, you know, because the, just exactly what you said, the congestion, the livability, you know, let alone the the pollution issues, you know, I just don't see how it works. You know, in other words, cities are going to have to take action, you know, just to, you know, so that it doesn't become a, you know, an environmental justice, social justice, you know, national security problem, you know, getting people, you know, from here to there. And uh, I wonder what your view of, of that is. Well, I think the the battle lines in this, I do see it as a struggle for the future. I think we need to have a clear head about the priorities and there's a need to protect the public purpose to ensure mobility in cities. I think part of the thrust towards these technologies is a thrust for personal freedom. You know, we've loved the car. The car has been a liberator of us. I think that's changed. I think it's no longer quite as much as the freedom vehicle. I do feel as though there is an economic divide between the haves and the have-nots and Uh the haves wanting to have freedom for personal mobility and to use autonomous cars as they wish. I do do think, you know, the Teslas being the expensive vehicles and then wanting to be able to do that and use those is part of this richer guys wanting to have freedom to do what they wish. Uh But there's also a need to protect the public purpose. You know, in the end, I don't see a future in cities where everybody's on public transport. I think the truth is that we only have a few large, major North American cities where mass transit's king, such as New York. So I think we're going to have more of it. And I think the central areas of cities are clearly going to be dominated by this, whereas the suburbs and the fringes of cities and rural areas will clearly be still dominated by cars. Mm -hmm. And it it could well be there's a role, certainly for autonomous type vehicles in this this future, in those contexts, if they can reduce costs. 
But I think that's not the discussion we're having now, where we seem to be thinking the autonomous features everywhere, where I think in practice, we're going to end up with a balance between these, but we're just not focusing on the right things at the moment. How can cities, because I think one of the key things that's really often missing in in the equation here, and, and this is my last question, is, you know, the consumer or the citizen behavior. So how do cities or how can cities, you know, better incentivize their citizenry to, you know, change and adapt their behavior to, you know, take and use more public or even, you know, active transport? I mean, do you... Um, do you see, you know, cities or maybe even provincial or national governments sort of, you know, taking actions to better sort of, you know, propel <laughs> or, or get their citizens, you know, out, out of their vehicles and in, into public transport? Well, the truth is, I, I think we're not seeing a lot of that. Our public transport systems, frankly, are not of a standard to be a choice mode yet. Uh, apart from maybe uh, in the larger cities where we have to have the investment, and New York City is going through that strain now, we are seeing other cities moving towards this. Even uh, Los Angeles has a huge investment program. I mean, to my mind, our public transport systems aren't good enough to, in, to make it attractive yet. We need to move towards that. Frankly, not for um, you know, necessarily environmental reasons, although they're definitely there, but even economic success of the city, uh, you know, agglomerations like the New York City is a, a world economy boom to business and finance. And uh, all of the larger successful world financial centers are all based around public transport systems because of the agglomeration you can successfully have. So we need to have investment. But as I say, I think cities really aren't doing this yet. I would like them to, but Really, the truth is still the truth. Mm-hmm. These cities are growing and they will have no choice but to have high volume carriers. So I think it will happen either way, begrudgingly uh, putting money in. And frankly, this idea you can privatize mobility around an autonomous vehicle just isn't going to work in cities. And it'll become increasingly obvious. Mm-hmm. So, but I do have a long term time frame in my head. As growth continues, it become increasingly obvious that we need to move this way. Uh, and uh, although the current discourse is not this way, I think the facts will always tell. If you are privy to say, what kind of timeline do you have in, in your head? And have you ever or do you have a sense of what kind of investment? I know it will be individualized for, uh, for cities, but in terms of making that investment into upgrading, improving, expanding public transport to, you know, to address, you know, citizen needs, get them, get them out of their car, so on and so forth, make it adequate. What kind of numbers are we ultimately talking? The answer to that question depends on what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. I think we shouldn't all think that all cities are going to be the same way. I think we have some cities on the, in the world where public transport is the dominant mode. And those cities have an urban form and a scale that have always required that. And um, you can talk about Paris, London, uh, Zurich, New York City, cities where they have no choice to have this. And then at the other end of the scale, we have cities with car dominance. But what I think is going to happen is all cities will move up the scale as they tend to increase and agglomerate more. I think we... We, there's a fact that we can't keep it sprawling 
one of the great dangers if we ever were successful with autonomous vehicles would be continuous sprawl. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's good economically or for human interaction. Sorry to be vague in answering your question, but I think this idea of what we're trying to achieve is the answer to your question in terms of the investment. But I think we're always going to be going up a scale as agglomeration continues. So the amount of investment is, is going to be continuous, quite frankly. We're always going to be building new systems to get to the next level. I think one of the transit fusion developments has, that have occurred that have given us more choice is that we've increasingly realised that bus systems that cover most of the city can start being right railways today. One of the new transit fusion developments around the world today is that we now have buses which are like trains. We have trams that no longer have tracks. We have trams that no longer have overhead wires for electricity with battery developments. These are examples of use of technologies to bring us forward in this area using the transit fusion concept. If you want numbers, they're going to be very large numbers, you know, many billions of dollars to invest. Uh, We've seen some numbers like this come out of the new plan in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And I think that will increasingly happen more. But at the same time, while while there are large numbers, you know, it's just a different way of moving the money around that we would have for the private car. I think that there's no real change in our investment in transport. The costs of doing all of this uh, as a share in the economy have always been about the same in in many ways. And I think that new technology will help us make that cheaper over time. So the really last question I want to ask you is, do you think a number of cities around the world have taken steps to ban cars or ban certain types of cars like diesel cars? Do you see that trend continuing simply as a way to address this congestion, traffic, you know, pollution, climate issue? I do, but I don't think it's been a roller coaster. I don't think it's been a huge change, even today. I think it's been a slow change as it's become increasingly obvious that Times Square should be for the people and not for the cars. And I think this slow development is, is natural and appropriate because the truth is we need cars at the moment because we don't have very good public transport systems, but we need deliveries in city centres to make businesses work. But the progress, which is slowly reclaiming parts of the cities, is highly appropriate and good for everybody. There's disagreement of this naturally as interests are concerned about changing the status quo. Uh, but I think increasingly we will be doing this, and we shouldn't be ashamed of it. It's, it's an opportunity. I don't see a future using transit and walking and cycling in cities as a bad and bleak future. I see it's going to be making those cities better and better, and that people will have a better lifestyle with more opportunities in cities which are easier to get around and where there are more opportunities for work and pleasure. All right, we'll end it there. That's the show. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Professor Curry so much for being on the show today. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks, Tammy. So please do us a favor before you go today. Head over to iTunes and rate this podcast. This is huge for us in terms of improving our ranking and keeping the show visible so that other people can discover it and hopefully also benefit from it. Thanks ahead of time for helping out. And if you're looking for more insight and analysis on future fuels and vehicles, sign up for my free newsletter at futurefuelstrategies.com. Thanks again. 